All right, 1 John chapter 4. We're going to do the first six verses tonight. So this is a shorter section than what we've been doing. Uh, we've been doing somewhere like 10 to 15 verses. We're going to do six tonight because this is a really good self-contained section, and it's a good point for us to understand. Uh, we're going to finish chapter 4 next week, and then we'll move into chapter 5. So to catch you up, this was written by the Apostle John, not John the Baptist. This is John the Evangelist, as he's called. This is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And throughout this book, he's been drawing a very sharp distinction between those who belong to God and those who do not. And he's used some pretty strong language a couple times, like calling people antichrists. We're going to revisit that, uh, that title tonight. And he's exhorting the readers to maintain that distinction. Like there's been long, long lists, and there are more to come in the following weeks, where he's saying people who belong to God don't do things like this. And it goes on for so long, you can start to think, oh, man, I, I think that I might be in trouble. But then he comes in, and he reaffirms the, the readers and says, but I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about these people here. And then you have things like he said in chapter 2, verses 15 uh, through 17, where he calls on us to maintain that distinction. And last week, we looked at the importance of love as the, the distinguishing factor between us and the world. And not just love like love as in words or loving your family, but love in deed. So tonight, we're going to continue that same theme of the distinction between us and them. And John is going to teach the readers to discern between what he will call true and false spirits. And we're going to talk about what he means when he says spirit, but uh, for our purposes right now, he's talking about evaluating the teachings of false teachers. We live in a day now where the church falls prey very often to calls for moderation and compromise. And uh, what's the point of pushing the doctrinal differences? They just divide people. We don't want to divide. We want to bring people together. Uh, isn't it all the same if we just love each other? But that's, that's not what the Bible teaches us to do. We have to hold fast to what we've received. And as we're going to see, these are not just different ideas or differences of opinion, but these are demonic doctrines. That's how the Bible describes it. Sent to deceive and confuse people. And we have to maintain that awareness in our minds because we don't see that physically. For us, it might look like, well, they've just got a different opinion than we do. Uh, so it's okay for us to disagree. Sometimes that is true, but about some things it is not okay. And that's how the enemy comes in and deceives. And we have to remember that there is an enemy that hates us, that hates the truth, that hates the gospel, and wants to confuse people and deceive people. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 that the Spirit expressly says, so you ever wonder, was that the Spirit of God or wasn't it? Paul's like, this is definitely what the Spirit says. That in later times, so now, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's not very uh, American, I guess, very Western to believe in demons and spirits, but you believe in God, you believe the Bible, so this is what we, we're going to teach and what we're going to believe. And it's often been said that the, Satan's greatest victory was getting people to stop believing in him because then you're not on the lookout for him anymore. But we need to take heart also because there is another spirit, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, and he is greater than any deceiver that we're ever going to face. And we're going to see as we come to the end of this passage, the victory of the Holy Spirit and thereby our victory is already assured, so we don't have to be afraid. So we're going to do again chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 
Let's start by just reading verse 1. And uh, verse 1 kind of sets up this whole passage, so we'll spend most of our time here and then go a little faster through the rest. He writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So he's, he's going to open up by telling us the need to test the spirits. And this whole thing of spirits is connected to what we saw in chapter 3, verse 24, when he said that by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. That was the last thing he said. So in chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to pick up on that idea of the spirit or of spirits and begin chapter 4. So I'm going to take a minute and we're going to understand and take the time to learn what it means when John says that God has given us the spirit. That's a pretty cool thing. But we, we need to understand what it means. And when we understand that, then the rest of this section will really open up and it'll make a lot of sense. So Jesus said in John 14, this is in the upper room before he went to the cross, John 14, verses 16 through 17. He's talking about how he's going to go to the Father. He's going to ascend and the disciples aren't going to see him anymore. But in verse 16 of chapter 14, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you, sorry, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus is saying, when I ascend to heaven, I will send you the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who will come upon you, who will fill you up. You will have a new heart, a new spirit given to you to make you holy, to give you power to live life, and to help you understand the things of God. This is when the disciples were lamenting and grieving that Jesus was leaving. This was Jesus' comfort. He says, yeah, but it's better if I go away. I'm with you. You can talk to me, but the Holy Spirit will dwell within you. And that's exactly what he did. You see this in Acts chapter 2. Uh, at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, the, the early church, and, and they spoke in other tongues, and they proclaimed the word boldly, and thousands were getting saved. And over and over throughout the book of, of Acts, it says that Paul or Peter or whoever, full of the Holy Spirit, began to do something. And this was the distinguishing characteristic, and still is the distinguishing characteristic of the church, that we have the Spirit of God within us. If you are a Christian... If you are a believer and have put your faith in Jesus Christ and confessed with your mouth that he is Lord, you have God's spirit dwelling within you. The spirit is called the seal of salvation that, that John writes that he is the one that lets us know that God abides with us because the spirit of God is within us. So there, there's not two classes of Christians, Christians who don't have the spirit and Christians who do. Uh, by definition, a Christian has the spirit of God. Now, I'm not going to dive into this, but you can quench the Holy Spirit and live your life in such a way that the Holy Spirit's work is uh, hindered in your life. And that could be the difference we see. But for our purposes today, for the purpose of salvation and regeneration, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 8, if you want to go read it. And he's there to sanctify your soul, to make you more like Jesus to empower your body to do ministry and to do the right things, and to instruct your mind. This is the part that we uh, sort of sho shoved to the side a little bit, uh, so we're going to bring that out tonight. Uh, the assurance of salvation comes from the Holy Spirit. 
How do I know I'm saved? Because the spirit is within you. And how do I know that? Because I'm being transformed morally, because my will is being conformed to that of God. There's power for ministry in my life. And we grow in understanding of the things of God. Jesus promised the disciples that the Holy Spirit would come to guide the church in its teachings as the apostles laid the foundation of doctrine. So sometimes we wonder or people will be skeptical and say, How, well, Jesus is one thing, but I don't trust those disciples. I, you know, who knows what they were teaching? They were teaching their own thing. They had their own agenda, and I don't trust them. Well, first of all, Jesus commissioned them. So they're the only ones that you can trust if you're going to trust anyone. And second of all, Jesus told them specifically, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to make sure you get it right. <laughs> That's comforting, right? John 14, 26, in that same passage, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So you ever wonder, how did the disciples remember everything Jesus said as they wrote the Gospels. Jesus just said, the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance the things that you are to say, everything that we did and said together, all the things that are important to communicate, the Spirit will teach you. And this is what took place during the early years of the church. We see this in Acts chapter 15 through the bringing in of the Gentiles and the consensus at Acts chapter 15. They even spoke in ways like this. It seemed good to the Spirit, so we did. It says the Spirit forbade Paul from going here or there. The Spirit said to the church at Antioch this or that. The Spirit was an active member of the early church. Really not a member, but a leader of the early church. Everything was done by his power. Especially, I would say, as the New Testament was written down. Paul would write in 2 Timothy that all scripture is what? God breathed. Theonoustos, right? It's been breathed out by God, which is kind of a play on words because the word for breath and spirit are the same word in Greek and in Hebrew. But pneuma, theotnustos, right? The spirit of God has been ordaining the scriptures. But this was not just for the disciples. If you think that the whole upper room discourse was just for the disciples, then that's a pretty tragic way to live. And it's also like, then why bother to write it down, fellas? <laughs> if this only is for you, then why, you, why would you bother to write it? But either way, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? So that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The Holy Spirit has been given to you so that you can understand what God has done for you. So does that mean we're looking for new doctrine and someone's going to come along and talk about God's wife or the fourth person of the, of the Trinity? No, we're not looking for that. The foundation has been laid, Scripture says, by the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the, first, uh, the chief cornerstone, and we build on that foundation. Difference between building on a foundation and adding to a foundation. We're supposed to build on the foundation to clarify and to discover new things, but we're not going to come up with something brand new. And all of you have the spirit within you to understand these things. So that's what he means when he says that we know that God abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. But then in chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to remind us the Holy Spirit is not the only spirit out there. And he's going to tell us to be on the lookout for false prophets and false teachings. He says, do not believe every spirit. Now, he's referring to false doctrine here, but he's also referring to other teaching spirits in the world. 
that there are other spiritual beings, angelic beings, you could say, and I use angelic in a neutral way, angelic beings that are teaching people things. And he says that there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. The word for false prophet in Greek is pseudo-prophetai. So pseudo-prophets. You've, you've heard of a pseudonym or a pseudo-spiritual. This is a pseudo-prophet. Now think about this for a minute. Because some people will try to say, now when he says spirit, he doesn't mean literal spirit. He just means, you know, you've got a, a bad spirit in you. Or that's, a, you know, this, that's the spirit. You know, that, that it's, it's not about that. Well, first of all, he's doing it in contrast to the Holy Spirit who is personal. Second of all, that was how they read the Bible at this time. This is how they understood the world was that the world was full of not just people, but of gods and men and spirits that were interacting with each other. Little g gods. And now he calls them pseudo-prophets. What is a prophet? A prophet is somebody who speaks for God, right? Elijah spoke for God. Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Hosea spoke for God. So a pseudo-prophet would be a spokesperson for a deceitful spirit. So as the, uh, the prophet Amos would write, thus saith the Lord, a pseudo-prophet would say, thus saith the Lord, but he's not really speaking for the Lord. He's speaking for a false spirit. Remember, we read at the very beginning, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, there are deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons in the world. And you have to be aware of that. You can't assume that everything you see is all that you see. There's other, other machinations going on that we're not aware of. Well, we are aware of, right? Paul says we are not ignorant of the enemy's devices. We know what he's up to. We just got to remind ourselves of that. And this is why it's dangerous for us to assume that all bad teaching is just a difference of opinion. I, you'll hear this sometimes. Like someone's got a really wacky uh, heretical doctrine. And they say, well, look, I think it comes from a good place. You know, they, they, people who say that everyone goes to heaven, it comes from a good place because they just love everybody and they want everyone to be loved and to be accepted or they'll, they'll say something like oh they're just mistaken like they're they got it wrong but we can fix that okay sometimes that is true but you cannot assume that that is always the case especially the more egregious the teaching and the more resistant somebody is to correction right you read about apollos in the book of acts dynamic preacher comes preaching the repentance that John the Baptist taught. Didn't know anything about Jesus. Comes into the synagogue, starts preaching. Everybody's listening to him. But uh, Priscilla and Aquila hear him teaching and they think he's close, but he doesn't have Jesus yet. So they take him aside. They instruct him in the things of God. Apollos accepts it and becomes a great evangelist for the kingdom of God. So that's somebody who was mistaken or didn't have all the information. When they were ex exposed to the truth, they accepted it. But somebody who's going to get angry <laughs> or fight with you when you try and show them what the word of God says, show them that, look, you're, you're kind of veering off the path here. You got to get back on it. That's how you know that this is not just a mistake, that Satan himself is out to erode the foundation of faith. That might be kind of strange for us because we're not really a creed type people. You know, our, our country, our culture, we don't really stand on creeds and beliefs and, and eternal values. And there's, there's really kind of a tug of war going on right now in, in America, at least, between the people who are like, we've got to hold on to the things that we've always had. And then people who are saying, no, everything we've always had is wrong. We've got to come up with new stuff, right? And that's not even a spiritual thing. That's just political back and forth. 
but that's kind of who we are is like we gotta we gotta expand and evolve and try new things and get rid of old stuff so for us to think that someone's salvation can be tied to what they believe we get offended by that so you're saying god's going to send someone to hell just because they disagree with you that's how it's framed right no not because they disagree with me but because they disagree with god and what god has said i just don't think god would would send someone to hell because they believe the wrong thing that's exactly what happens because how are we saved? You can believe in your heart that God has risen, from, risen Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. we got a whole Bible of things that are not just beliefs, they're true. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the light shining in the darkness. So if Satan can get someone to place their faith in a false message, he's plundered their soul. Because faith leads to action. If he can get them to trust in something other than Jesus for salvation, he's got them. That's the whole point of Galatians, right? Galatians runs through this big book-length study on why we are not saved by circumcision. You're like, who cares, man? They all believe in Jesus. These guys think you should be circumcised. These guys not. What difference does it make? Paul's saying because you're not placing your faith in Jesus anymore, you're placing it in circumcision and keeping the law. So You've been cut off from Christ because your beliefs are teaching you to trust in something else. And God is a jealous God and will not share his glory, right? The book of Hebrews, the same thing. You want to go back to this stuff, but that stuff can't save you. Only Jesus can. So it's not spiritual to say it doesn't matter what you believe. The Bible makes a big screaming deal about what you believe. Because salvation is tied to faith. There are souls at stake. And that's why he tells us, test the spirits. Acts chapter 17. This is, this is a great story. You know the story of the Bereans. Paul comes into the city of Berea. And he, what he would do is he'd go into the synagogue and he'd proclaim to the Jews that the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. He's risen from the dead. And I've come to tell you about him. And he would go through those scriptures and prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, most places, they just ran him out of town. But it says that the Bereans were more noble than the rest because they went home, opened up their Bibles. Well, they didn't really have Bibles at home, but they opened up the Torah scroll. They opened up the, the Tanakh and they read through it and say, is Paul right? And Paul's like, good for you guys. That, there you go. Check me. That's because my authority means nothing. My authority is based on the word of God. That's Acts chapter 17, verse 11, if you want to look it up later. But he's telling us here in, in 1 John to use your spirit-given discernment. And if you're like, I, I just can't understand this stuff. Yes, you can. And yes, you must. You're commanded to. You're commanded to have enough of a grasp on what true doctrine is to be able to sniff out false doctrine. And you have the Holy Spirit within you to help you do that. Test the spirits. It's interesting how many false teachings rely on angelic testimony for their ideas. You know, you talk to somebody like, this is really weird. Why would you say that? Well, there was an angel that appeared to whoever your guy is, and he taught them this. Or I was in a dream, and then all of a sudden I was in a trance, and then somebody appeared to me shining and glowing, and he told me the truth, and I wrote it down. Or I, I, I have a guy, I know a man who's reincarnated Jesus, and he's teaching us new things, and I know because there's been all these crazy things happening. I mean, consider Mormonism, right? Mormonism, they believe that the angel Moroni uh, came and taught Joseph Smith 
that everything Christians had taught until now was wrong. Here's some new books. Why you can't do that? You can't just change anything. I know, I know. I was skeptical too, and I wouldn't believe it if it was me. But listen, there was an angel that spoke to me. About Islam. Islam's a big one, right? Islam believes that Muhammad was was accosted by a jinn, which is where you get genie from, from like the Arabian Nights, right? A jinn, a demon that that seized him and possessed him and told him to write. And he resisted it for a long time until his wife said, well, maybe, maybe that angel has something good to say. Why don't, why don't you just listen? And that's when he began to say, oh, yes, I'm, an, I'm a prophet, and here's some new scriptures. And you say, how can you add to the word of God? He's like, I know, I know it sounds weird to kill everybody who disagrees with Jesus, but that's what the angel told me. And as if we're supposed to go, oh, an angel, well, that, that's something different. I had a dream, I had a vision. Are those things legitimate? Yes, of course. You can have dreams, you can have visions, right? The Bible even talks about trances. That might make you uncomfortable, but it's in the Bible. But you have to test these things. Angels don't have the same authority God does. Angels are under judgment too. Actually by us, 1 Corinthians 6.3 says that we are going to judge angels. Isn't that wild? Let that cook your brain for a little bit. So if we're going to judge angels, we can at least judge what they teach us now, right? When a real angel appears to you in the book of Revelation and John falls down on his face to worship this angel, angel grabs him by the scruff of his neck and picks him up and says, don't do that. <laughs> I'm just an angel. I'm a minister. I'm a servant just like you. You operate in the physical. I operate in the spiritual. We're on the same team. I'm not God. And if that doesn't convince you, Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. It's right there in the Bible, man. If an angel is going to come to you and teach you something that's contrary to scripture, contrary to the Bible, contrary to God, you reject it. It's really unfortunate that there's so many people who they give their testimony, quote unquote, like this. Well, I struggled with my sin for a long time, but then finally I was weeping before God again. And then just this great peace came over me. And I knew that God accepted me and that it was okay for me to continue in my sin. And so it's like God and me have an understanding. I know what the Bible says, but God spoke to me. That doesn't work. Because the Bible says, even if a divine being speaks to you, reject it. You stand on the word of God and what the Lord has already said. Yeah, but the Spirit said. The Spirit is not going to contradict himself. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He got it right the first time. He's not going to say, oh, I forgot something. I better talk to somebody in 2018 Virginia so that they can let everybody else know. You don't get special dispensations of theology from God. You get it from the word of God. So this is why he's telling us you need to have a discerning, critical eye for everyone who wants to teach you. This is why at Calvary Chapel, for the most part, we teach through the Bible. Because I want you to be able to see that what I'm teaching you comes from the Bible. This is why I soak it in all these cross-references, because I want you to get familiar with hearing the Bible speak. My job is just to explain what this says. So when somebody comes up with some weird thing, you might not be able to know exactly why it's wrong, but you're like, who studies the Bible that way? 
You know, have you ever, you ever heard that where somebody like grabs half a verse and says, now what does this really mean? That's usually something you got to look out for too, that phrase. You don't judge a teacher by how charismatic they are. You don't judge them by where he got his information. You judge him by what he says and you contrast it with what the word of God says. Test the spirits because there are many false prophets. So we know we've got to test the spirits. Here's the question. How do we test them? What's the standard we judge them against? Somebody comes in with a strange new idea. How do we test it? Because sometimes an idea might sound odd, but it might be totally biblical and it might be a good needed correction, right? Martin Luther, John Calvin, those guys had some very strange sounding ideas, but they were firmly rooted in the word of God. They were a needed correction to the church. That's what revival is, right? When we get back on track from where we've been. But you test it against the word of God. So how, how do we do this? How do we test whether this is God speaking or whether this is a strange new idea? We'll read verses 2 and 3. By this you know the spirit of God. Here's how you know that the spirit of God is speaking. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of, an, of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. All right, so here's the how. First of all, it's important to remember we do not evaluate doctrine based on our preferences, what we like, what we think, what we know to be true, right? My lived experience has taught me that doesn't work. You might have learned some important things through your lived experience, but you need to get something that's bigger than you, and namely the Word of God. You don't evaluate based on what's popular or what's accepted or what's contemporary. Somebody sent me, I don't know why people send me these videos. They just make me angry. <laughs> Somebody sent me this video of some preacher who was like, yeah, there's lots of things in the Bible I disagree with. It's like, how can you say some of these things? And I'm like, why are you even a pastor? Why would you pick that as your job? If you're like, I don't like most of what the Bible has to say, and I think the rest of the church is wrong. I mean, what are you doing? And then that's how you evaluate Scripture. You're going to sit in judgment of the Word of God based on what you like or don't like. You get your presuppositions from the Bible. You don't start with your own ideas. Well, I know that this is wrong, and this is right, and this is good, and this is bad. Oh, the Bible messes up with some of those things, so we're going to scratch this part out and pull that book, and I'll just, let's just make everybody feel good. You can build a church that way. You're not going to please the Lord that way. So not on our preferences. Let's leave that aside. He's going to center the criteria for judgment squarely on the incarnation of Jesus. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Those who accept that are accepted. Those who reject it are false. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. John 1.14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word, Jesus, was preexistent, became a man, dwelt among us. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's, a, that's actually a really very succinct summary of the gospel. It places the attention squarely upon the Son of God. If the incarnation is true, then so is the rest. Do you believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? I believe there was a man named Jesus who taught some good things. No, no. Do you believe that he came? He had to come from somewhere. Do you believe he came in the flesh? Well, I, you know, I think Jesus achieved divinity through his, such a good life. 
Yeah, that's possible. That's totally possible. Anybody can do that, right? No. Do you believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? I, I think if you believe it, that's important. If it means something to you, then it's meaningful. But please, just can we just stop saying that? Stuff drives me crazy. If it makes you happy, I'm not interested in what makes me happy. I'm interested in what's true, man. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. If the incarnation is true, so is the rest of it. If Jesus Christ is the Son of God come in the flesh, then everything he says, we need to listen to. Everything he did is true, and he is. We believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the virgin-born, incarnate Son of God, who died as a propitiatory sacrifice, was raised from the dead, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes for us as we await his return to judge the living and the dead. That's Christianity. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended to heaven, and he's coming back. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. It's amazing to me how many planks of the platform people want to pull out but still call themselves Christians. It's like, if you want to go start a cult, just go start a cult. If you want to have a community group, go start a community group. If you want to start a nonprofit organization, if you want to do philanthropy, go do it. But don't call yourself a Christian. It's actually a very troubling trend, and I'm going on a rabbit trail, but it's probably good for you guys to know, uh, especially in, in the high church tradition, so Episcopalian, Presbyterian, things like that, where people are becoming pastors or becoming priests or whatever, not because they believe any of this, but because they believe the church is a good social institution, but is backward in a lot of things and actively want to change it. So, um, you know, we were in Williamsburg and there's a historic Episcopalian church there. Like it's been there for hundreds of years. The church is older than America, right? <laughs> Literally older than America. And we were walking by one time at, in Williamsburg. We were going by and very cool church, got the bells and everything. And I, I just on a whim pulled up their website and like I looked, ran down the list of their clergy and like it was so, the strangest thing was like degree in sociology from Brown University, degree in psychology from Harvard University, you know, degree in, in feminist and African-American studies from Berkeley University. Like, like you're running through all these and not that necessarily any of those things are wrong, but it's like, wait a minute, where are the preachers here? Where are the theologians? Where are the pastors here? And what, and you all know as well as I do that those schools and those degrees are, are pushing that really progressive neo-Marxist idea. And they say, oh, the church is getting this wrong. We got to get in the church so that we can teach people about this. They see the church as a way to advance their ideas rather than as, a, as an act of worship to the Lord. It's a very serious problem. And we're going to have to deal with that, I'm sure, at some point too, as, you know, as evangelical Christians. And there are plenty within those denominations who are taking a stand too. Pray for them because it's tough, man. It's tough to be in that situation because a lot of times they don't have a lot of control over who becomes their preacher. You know what I mean? So pray for your brothers and sisters there. But any teaching or movement that disregards the person of Jesus Christ has left the Christian faith. And according to 1 John, you are spouting a doctrine of demons. Every true spirit is going to exalt Jesus as the centerpiece of salvation. We are Christians. The name of our religion comes from Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ. We are Christians. Every weird cult. Here's the thing. Every weird cult you've ever heard of does something weird with Jesus. 
It's never the Holy Spirit, although there are you know, fringe groups there too. It's never God the Father, although there is that. It's never the Bible. It's always Jesus. All the, the classic heresies that the church had to handle, somebody was messing with Jesus. You'd think that would be the easy one because we're Christians, right? We know who Jesus is. But they always want to change something, that he wasn't really God or he wasn't really man or he wasn't real at all or he didn't teach the things he taught or he didn't die or he didn't rise or didn't do miracles or he's not fully God or he wasn't actually born of a, like always twisting this stuff. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they believe that Jesus was a God and they think they're clever with their Greek even though it's like, you know, Greek 101 level Greek errors. If you want to get into it, I'd be happy to go over it with you later. Jesus is one God, just like you and me, bringing Jesus down to our level. And what do they do? They, they then place attention upon themselves and their teachings. Jesus doesn't save you. Our teachings and our rituals save you. Muslims believe that Jesus was a good. Some of them even believe that Jesus was a sinless prophet. But they absolutely reject that he was God's son. They say, far be it that Allah would have a son. They say he was not born of a virgin and he did not die on the cross. There's some really strange ideas how they get around that one. One of them says that when Simon, Simon of Cyrene started carrying Jesus' cross, uh, Jesus did a miracle where he kind of vanished into the crowd and made Simon look like Jesus so that Simon was crucified instead of him and that Jesus ascended later. So uh, they really go out of their way, bent themselves out of shape. Some of them believe that Jesus ascended to heaven. A lot of them believe Jesus will return at the end of the age and, and uh, proclaim the truth of Allah and the Mahdi's greatness and all this other kind of stuff. Uh, so they, all these groups, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, they all love Jesus, but they've warped him so that you can't even recognize him anymore. And it becomes serving their gods and their ideas rather than exalting Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony at the proper time. It's the testimony at the proper time. What does that mean? Paul's like, this is what we're standing on. One God, Old Testament, one mediator between God and men, New Testament, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Gospel in a nutshell. Christianity boils down to a belief in the sacrifice of Jesus. And those who want to teach against that are teaching against our very salvation. If you're ever in a, in a conversation with one of these groups, whether it's a cultish group or whether it's somebody who's just trying to tell you that this part of the Bible doesn't count or this part of the Bible doesn't count or Jesus wasn't really this or that, you got to ask this question. Then why did Jesus have to die? If we're not going to hell for our sin, why did Jesus have to die? If there's no judgment, why did Jesus have to die? If we're all going to ascend to be God one day, why did Jesus have to die? You have to ask that question. This is our criteria for evaluating the spirits, right? If anyone says Jesus didn't really come, or he came in some weird way, or that Jesus is unnecessary, it's really about you and finding yourself. They're from the devil, John says. That backs up to what he's been saying earlier in this, these chapters. He's like, you got the children of God and the children of the devil. Oh, I don't want to call anybody a child of the devil. That's just really so harsh. If you're not willing to call a spade a spade, you're in serious trouble. That's what he's talking about here. You say it in love. You say it with tears in your eyes, but you still got to say it. Okay? In fact, John says this is the spirit of the Antichrist. He's not saying that anybody who teaches this is the Antichrist. Joseph Smith is the Antichrist. 
you know, Pastor Russell from Jehovah's Witnesses, he's, a, he's the Antichrist. Muhammad was the Antichrist. They were Antichrists. Remember we saw this in chapter, what was it, end of chapter 2, right? Talking about there are many Antichrists who have come. But there is the Antichrist who comes. And here's the funny thing. It's like, it's like every president we've ever had, like since John Adams, has been called the Antichrist. Like really, this cracked me up. I was reading a biography of John Adams, and there were actually people saying that he was the Antichrist. I'm like, wow, we got through George Washington, and all of a sudden, they're all Antichrists. So uh, no one's going to have any doubt about who the Antichrist is. It's going to be obvious, right? But there are Antichrists who teach things like this. And the name just spells it out, right? You are against Christ. The things you teach are changing and warping the character of Jesus Christ. They are not the guy, but they share his spirit and they share his motivation. And he says the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world to warp people's understanding of who Jesus is. You know, and there are people, oh my goodness, what was this name, guy's name? Uh, Deepak Chopra. He's this really like pseudo-spiritual, uh, you know, half Hindu, half Buddhist kind of dude. And I saw this at the airport. He had a book and it was, you know, airport books are weird. Like if you ever want to have a lot of fun, go to the airport, buy like just a random book and you'll have some fun reading. Uh, but this book is called The Third Jesus. And I'm like, oh, I got to get this. <laughs> I didn't buy it, but I looked at it and no lie. Like the introduction was about how Christians have hogged Jesus. There's the first Jesus, which is the historical Jesus. Then there's the second Jesus, which is the Jesus that Christians have created. And he says, and Christians have been so dogmatic about Jesus' teachings and life and seeing that there's only one way to interpret it. But really, Jesus belongs to everyone. It's like, that is so weird, first of all. It's like, that's such a weird thing to say. The spirit of the Antichrist. We always have to be ready to combat it, to defend the name of Jesus. I always used to say this to our high schoolers, and I'll say it to you guys too. You should be experts on Jesus. You're a Christian, right? You should be the go-to person about Jesus. You know, when you're in class and your teacher is talking about religious studies or something like that, you should just be the king or queen of knowledge of Jesus. So that when they try and bring out some strange thing, you're like, Jesus didn't say that. Or, yeah, Jesus did say that, but you got to keep reading. Didn't Jesus say, judge not that you may be that you may not be judged? Yeah, but like that's part of a whole thing that he said. You just quoted like the first part. There's more to that, you know? Or Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus dined with tax collectors and sinners. He was a champion of the oppressed and the downtrodden. Jesus also dined with tax collectors and healed the centurions, so he was there for the oppressors too. So, you know, you got to be the the Jesus defender, right? Who just knows everything. Seems like every job I ever had, except for this one because I work at the church. There was always some, usually a man, usually like middle-aged, who thought he was like some really spiritual religious guru who like has all these weird thoughts that he got off of blogs on the internet about who Jesus really was and what he really said. And like pulls out strange like conspiracy theory facts. Like some guy told me one time, like, you know, I said, well, Jesus wasn't real. I'm like, what do you mean Jesus wasn't real? Nobody... You can fight about whether or not Jesus was God. Who fights about whether or not Jesus was real? Like, everybody agrees. Well, there's no evidence outside the Bible. Like, first of all, it's a lot of evidence. Second of all, what about, uh, you know, Josephus, who wrote and that there was a man named Jesus who was a prophet and was killed? Because, well, the Catholic Church forged Josephus to give extra evidence. I'm like, where, where in the world did you get that from? And I don't like to throw down my degree because who cares if I have a degree or not? But I'm like, I'm in Bible college. I've never, ever, ever heard this. Well, yeah, you just, you're listening to the man. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm done. But 
You got to be the one who knows because people will hear that like, well, well, I heard somewhere that Josephus doesn't even count or I heard somewhere that Jesus never said this or that. You got to be the Christian that stands up and says, no, this is who Jesus is. And here's the deal. It's not always obvious whether some teaching is anti-Christian or not. Everything just sounds really smooth and cool, right? You got to watch out for slippery people too. We're like, you can ask them a million questions, but by the time you're done, you're like, I have no idea what that guy believes. You know, they ask him like really simple questions. And they're like, you know, so, so do you believe that Jesus was God? Well, look, man, I, I just love the Bible. And I think that, you know, we got to protect immigrants in this country because, you know, this is really tough. And Jesus would have loved everybody. It's like, hold on, you didn't answer that question. Go back. You're supposed to be a pastor. Don't you believe this stuff? Or sometimes people are putting out ideas that don't specifically address this, but they're kind of leading up to when they're going to try and rip out the rug from the gospel. This is why we have pastors and apologists and teachers and theologians, but you should learn to do this too. You should be familiar enough with the word of God that if somebody's going to come with some strange idea, you can raise up your hand and go, uh, that's really weird. Could you please go back and talk about that a little more? When you consider that salvation is not found in any other belief or any other name, you can understand why the devil would want to erode the concept of who Jesus was. So you got to watch out. Got to watch out. And there's always like a new thing blowing through the church that's going to try and take away people with it, take them away from orthodoxy. And the Bible calls it winds of doctrine or talks about being children just tossed about on the waves you know, in your beliefs. We need to stand firmly on the foundation. Moving on to verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You guys have heard that verse before, right? It's a great, great verse. First John has like some of the best one-liners in the whole Bible. It's awesome. The whole book is good, but some of those are just like, wow, it's awesome. Do not love the world or the things in the world, right? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. I just love it. It's all good stuff. Once again, he's providing that contrast, though. He's writing about the spirit of Antichrist, but then he rushes in to affirm that his readers are separate from that kind of wickedness. So remember, the book of 1 John is meant to affirm you as a Christian, not to call you out for your failure, right? And he uses that term, little children, right? Technia in Greek. And he uses the word beloved back in verse 1, agapetoi, right? These are, this is how John writes, very tender. He's, he's an old man writing now. You know, he was, he was the son of thunder when he was a young man. But as he grew older, the Lord just kind of made him the grandpa of the church. That's sort of how he writes. And he says, little children, you have overcome because you are of God. He announces our victory, false spirits, false prophets, the power of the Antichrist. We have overcome these things. Love how it's past tense. You have overcome. He did that back in chapter two. Remember, he's like, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven. I write to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And he says it again in verse 14. Romans 8, 37, Paul writes, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is good to remember, especially when you're talking about false teaching and the antichrists. Because when we see false teaching heresy start to gain traction like a lot of people are starting to go after it it's gonna be very distressing 
And you start to worry and panic. What's going to happen to the church? Especially when somebody you love gets caught up in that. You ever have somebody you love, family member or a friend, get caught up into some weird religious idea, some weird teaching? It's really, it's heartbreaking. And a lot of times you can't even talk to them about it. It's like, well, I can't listen to you because you're part of the organized religious machine and I've been liberated in my mind now. And it's like, dude, you are so stuck. And all you can really do is pray for them sometimes. And we think the gospel is going to end. When you think about the, the high church denominations that are struggling and hanging by like a fingernail, it seems now, it's like, what's going to happen to the church in the USA? It's distressing. It should drive us to prayer. Really, it should. But there's good news. And the good news is that we already have the victory. I don't know. We're pretty weak. Look, it's not by your power. It's because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I remember, we're talking about spirits now. The Holy Spirit beats every other spirit. Rock, paper, scissors. The Holy Spirit wins every time. doesn't matter what you throw at him. The Holy Spirit wins. That's why Jesus wrote in John 16, 33, I have written these things to you, said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I don't know how we're going to win. You're not going to win. God's going to win. That makes it easy. God's going to take care of it. The spirit who is in you is greater than any other spirit in the world, and our victory depends upon him, not us. So whatever the thing is that's blown through the church, you know, whether it's some weird neo-Marxist thing or whether it's some weird you know, rejection of the inerrancy of Scripture or some weird, <laughs> some weird Buddhist book you find in the airport, there have been heresies and false prophets from the very beginning. So actually, Simon, the, the magician, Simon Magus, you know, the guy that tried to buy uh, the power of the Holy Spirit from Peter, tradition tells us that he started the first cult, first Christian cult, where he called himself a Christian and gathered these believers around him and taught, like, mixed Jesus with all the magical stuff that he did. And that was stamped out and eradicated. But, like, even that early, there was heresy going on. There were the Arians that came through. There were the Docetists that came through. There were the, I'm just, I, the list goes on. You know, then you, you watch how the church slowly got corrupted by uh, the idolatry and by the, the, the materialism that eroded the foundation of the word of God until the Lord sent his reformers to come and smash that into pieces. We're still feeling the effects of that. If it takes a thousand years to build up to something, it's going to take a long time to recover from it. We're still recovering from that. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, Christian science, whatever the thing is, is always going to be there. Always, until the Antichrist comes. Kind of like Jesus said, the poor you always have with you, heretics you always have with you. Now that we have the internet, they all have a blog and a podcast. <laughs> but the good news is what? The gospel endures forever. Despite every charismatic teacher that has swept through the world teaching some false ideas, we're still believing the same historic gospel that was taught by the apostles. We are still opening up the Bible to correct ourselves to get back to what Jesus taught. The gospel is still on the move. And even in our culture where we see that uh, the faith is in decline as a culture, people are still being saved. You look around the world, man, India, China, South Korea, South America, Africa, Christianity is exploding. It's like even if they, they succeeded in killing the last Christian in the United States of America and go, ha, all of a sudden, 
you've got the South Korean church, which has millions of Christians, and China, which has millions of Christians, and India, and Nepal, right? All these places where the gospel's never been, it's finally taken root. The gospel is not in chains. The gospel cannot be stopped. This is why we can endure, even when it's tough and hard, and even when it's like it's so close to the truth that we're tempted to compromise, even when it's unpopular, we can and we must endure. Why? Because this message has endured through the centuries. The newest ideas, they come and they go. I mean, you can think even since what, like the, you know, the 1400s, the Renaissance and the Romantic period and the Enlightenment and you know, the Great Awakening. It's like ideas just come and they go and they come and they go. Even when they're around for like 100, 200 years, what is that in, in history? It's nothing. The gospel has stood since the beginning. So even if we feel like we're on our heels and everybody's falling away and the gospel's been stamped out, take heart. God's not going to be defeated. The spirit is in you is greater than any lying spirit that has gone out into the world. And we finish here with verse 5 and 6. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. So you see that contrast again that he, he's done over and over again throughout this book. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So talking about us, we have overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. But he's going to contrast us with those who peddle these false teachings. And he, what he's contrasting is their reception versus our reception. You ever wonder why so many weird ideas and false teachings get so much traction and so much acceptance in the world? It's like, why would you believe that? You, know, you, you see these things that go out and it's, you know, how Islam is one of the fastest growing religions in the world. It's like, why? It's brutal and it's medieval and it's, it's harsh and it's, it subjugates people. Why would you believe that? Or even, you know, communism killed how many hundreds of millions of people over the 20th century? And now, like, there's a revival of people pushing for it? It's like, what is wrong with you? You look at Nazi Germany. How did people get sucked into this stuff? You're you just like, what is going on? The answer, according to John, is that false prophets come from the world and teach from the world to the world. They've got the same priorities. And it poses no threat to the enemy. Remember, we're thinking supernaturally here. The enemy opposes the gospel. Why would he oppose any false teaching? Yeah, go ahead. One heresy is good as another. Off you go. Start a new church. He's not going to stop that. He's not going to fight against that. And the world recognizes the language and the tone and the spirit with which these people speak. So they accept it. But we come from a different place with different priorities. We are from God. So when we preach, we're rejected. People are like, this is so offensive. How is that God, the gospel has to hold the record for the most offensive teaching ever. Because every culture ever has been offended by the gospel. We win. <laughs> John the Baptist had his head cut off. Paul had his head cut off. Jesus was crucified. If we could just get the gospel right, everybody would get saved. Really? Jesus said in Matthew 10, verses 24 through 26, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? It's like, guys, I'm God, and they've called me the devil. You're not God. It's not going to be good for you. So have no fear of them. 
for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Why does that last phrase t come in about the secrets being revealed? Like, don't be afraid because someday you will be vindicated. The truth is not the truth because everybody believes it. It's true because it's true. Even if everybody disagrees, then someday you're going to be vindicated on judgment day. You guys ever see or read, this is maybe a deep track, the play Rhinoceros? I think it's French or Italian. It's a European play. And it's, it's a play about how everybody in town starts turning into rhinoceroses. Everybody's turning into a rhino. And at first, everybody's like, this is so horrible. This is so weird. This is so strange. But after a while, it becomes kind of cool to turn into a rhino. And it's kind of interesting. And people are start talking about how it's unfortunate that humans are so ugly and, you know, they don't have horns on their face. And, like, why do they have to look like that? It's so strange. And the main character is this bum who's a total loser. He's a bad guy. He's, you know, got nothing going for him. And after a while, when everybody's, like, turning into rhinos on purpose, he's like, what is going on? He's like, it's like him and this one woman are the last people left. And like the, you know, the rhinos are all like moaning and like making their rhino noises and grunting and stuff. And she's like, listen to the music. He's like, it's not music. They're rhinos. <laughs> right. And he's, he's talking about, you know, what about the music that humans have created and the poetry and this and that. And ends up being he's the last human on earth. And he's like, I will never capitulate. That's such a good picture for us. It's, I think it was talking about fascism or something else, but it really applies. Sometimes you feel like, am I the only crazy one? Am I the only one that sees this? Even though everybody else has gone after something else, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Someday they're going to see that you were right. John says, the ones who hear us and accept our teachings are the ones who know God. The ones whom God has called and God has chosen. Remember Jesus said there were many who believed in him, but he didn't commit himself to all of them because he knew their hearts. Even people who come in and say, yes, I believe in Jesus. They're susceptible to other ideas and other teachings. And the Lord's like, I know who I've, who I've called and who I've chosen. Well, that's so arrogant to say that only the spiritual people believe what we believe. Well, that's not me. That's the Bible that says that. We preach the hidden mysteries of God. So only those who know God or are known by God will understand it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, remember we read this verse at the beginning, but I'm going to keep going past it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Consider that. If you reject any possibility that there is a God or anything spiritual or supernatural, you're not going to get the Bible. That's why you have so many atheists on YouTube mocking and making fun of Christians and thinking they sound so smart. And you hear them talk, and it's like, you totally missed the point, man. This is like kindergarten stuff. And you think that you've somehow caught us. Like, aha, you never thought of this, did you? Because they're thinking on a purely material level. And Paul's like, it's a thing of the spirit. The change happens in someone's heart, not in their mind. You can convince somebody of, it, of anything, and they might go, yeah, I still don't want to do this because then I'll have to change my life. Now, this is not an excuse for us to be uh, difficult to understand, right? 
<laughs> Only spiritual people can understand my messages. Your sermons are really confusing, Pastor. Well, you must not be spiritual then. No, you might just be confusing. <laughs> but it's, what it is is it's a reminder that we're not of this world. Our message is not of this world. And this is why John teaches us. You've got to know, see what he says, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And hey, there is such a thing as error, despite what people want to say. You know, people have their truth. One of those insufferable phrases that, you know, drive me nuts. My lived truth. I've got to speak my truth and sing my truth and write my truth. And there's no, you know, the conclusions I come to are wrong can, or can never be wrong. No, there is such a thing as error. Because the thing is, the message that we preach is the only thing that can save people's souls. That's why we have to keep it from corruption. You've got to keep the knowledge of Jesus free from distortion. Never water it down to make it easier for somebody to accept. The Bible says that the gospel is a stumbling block. Paul says, I would never remove the offense of the cross. There's a hump that people have to get over. And Paul's like, and we're not getting rid of it. It needs to be there. We need to have that discernment, that, that discriminating spirit to know when there's truth and when there's error. So the lesson for you is to learn the Bible, learn the word, <laughs> study doctrine, ask the hard questions, get good answers, pray that you can learn what the Spirit's voice sounds like. When you hear those alarm bells going off in your head, listen to that. It might be the Lord. And I pray that the Lord will empower us all to stand because you know, we're young in this room. We're young. We got a lot of life left if the Lord tarries, which means we're going to see a lot of bad ideas come in and blow out and come in and blow out. But the word of God is going to stand. So let's pray that the Lord will empower us to stand too and to not get taken away by these things. All right.